I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello, this is Bill, and welcome to episode 28 of Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare podcast. Today's episode will be devoted to a primer, an introduction to U.S. military special operations forces in the Department of Defense. I say that specifically because I'm not going to talk about any three-letter agency organizations like the paramilitary organizations that the CIA or other organizations within the intelligence community field. We'll be discussing the Coast Guard or the Department of Justices or the Department of Treasury's various special operations forces that they fielded. Special operations being a phraseology that has been so abused, battered, and bandied about by those who don't actually conduct it but want to have the operator cred that they adopt it. So we are going to confine ourselves to the DOD. We are also going to confine ourselves to vanilla organizations. We're not going to discuss the Army of Northern Virginia. We're not going to discuss SFODD, Delta, the unit, uh, whatever its current permutations are as it refers to itself as America's premier counterterrorism fill-in-the-blanks task force. We all know what that's about. There are plenty of other books and folks out there who have far more knowledge about that and also probably have the permissions and access to single better accurate pictures of what they're actually doing, what they've done, in the past than I would, so I'm not going to waste your time by speculating on those things. We're just going to talk about the bones and the infrastructure of what I refer to as the vanilla special operations forces in the U.S. Armed Forces. We are finally here in the new bunker in Florida. My entire library is unpacked. A lot of my other tools are unpacked, some of them either decorating my library or in uh, places in the library or in the garage where I keep them. I've pretty much been able to unpack all my kit. Had an opportunity to go to Steel Industries in Bradenton, Florida, a little north of me, a little south of Tampa, to get a new set of nods. I'm very pleased with their customer service and the professionalism they had. Great engineering and attention to detail. Now I have a really nice set of PBS-14s and the associated helmet mounts. Stand by to bring money if you wish to have that capability. The, the devices, the mounts, everything like that are quite expensive. If you'll just look at how much a Wilcox G24 and maybe a Knight Fighter's J-Arm costs, you'll see why this stuff can be so spendy. That is Steel Industries. You can um, gurgle them or Google them or look them up on the computer using the search engine of your choice. Highly recommend them. Great customer service. Great prices, relatively speaking. And keep in mind that if you have a $10 head, get a $10 helmet and plan appropriately. As I am wont to do, I love to discuss things, but I also love to find people smarter than I am with 
witty quotes that they have concerning these kind of things. B.H. Liddell Hart was an historian in the early 20th century who talked about the indirect and the direct fight, uh, wrote books on strategy and tactics in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Quite a good writer. Uh, One of his that I really value is, quote, the practical value of history is to throw the film of the past through the material projector of the present onto the screen of the future, end of quote. I would like to think that those wise words are probably a guidepost for me throughout the conduct of this entire podcast series, wherever it takes us. T.E. Lawrence, of course, one of my favorites, one of the peak guerrilla practitioners from the early 20th century. End of uh, quote. We use the smallest force in the quickest time in the furthest place. End of quote. Having spent time in and around U.S. Army Special Forces, I can say that that was a watchword then. I would hope that it would be a watchword now, but I have my own opinions about where U.S. Army Special Forces have gone and what the last two decades of fighting in the Middle East have done to it. SOCOM, Special Operations Command, Tampa, Florida, and um, tentacles all over the planet. Remember here, we're not talking Darksoft. We're not talking about JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command, under whom those who shall not be mentioned in this podcast will not be mentioned, but we'll probably talk about them tangentially on occasion. SOCOM in Tampa, Florida, near MacDill Air Force Base, if not conjoined on MacDill Air Force Base, on that curious southern-oriented peninsula in, um, on the Gulf Coast of Florida. That's where they're stationed out of, although they're everywhere on Earth, and they have a presence all over the place. There's uh, 56,000 active duty, eh, about 7,400 reserve, and 6,600 civilian personnel. Now, these figures could be out of date. I suspect it could be higher than that. Uh, SOCOM, U.S. SOCOM, the U.S. Special Operations Command, was a result of a bill in 1986 to take care of the ills and cure the malfunctions that occurred as a result of Operation Eagle Claw in 1979, the failed attempt for the Carter administration to send in a combined task force that had not trained and rehearsed well together to find themselves in the Iranian desert and rescue the hostages that had been taken by the Iranian mullahs and their malcontents and miscreants in 1979. Of course, we all know that was a failure. Maybe again, I know I always make these promises, a treatment in a future episode on Operation Eagle Claw. I urge all of you to take a look at it, but it was probably the inspiration for the Goldwater-Nichols Act in 1986 that gave us the combatant commands planet-wide, among which was SOCOM. I have my own grief about combatant commands, but that is not germane to the subject today, so we won't be discussing that. USOCOM's components are the U.S. Army Special Operations Command, USASOC, the Naval Special Warfare Command, NSWC, the, or WARCOM, some refer to it as, Air Force Special Operations Command, AFSOC, and the Marine Corps Forces Special Operations Command, MARSOC. Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC, is a U.S. SOCOM sub-unified command but we probably won't be discussing them today. Once the planet had been demarcated into these various combatant commands, of course, SOCOM had to have what they call TSOCs, which is Theater Special Operations Commands. 
Now the Special Operations Command South, SOC South, is located at Homestead Air Force Base, Florida. They support the U.S. Southern Command, and its CCSA is the Army. SOC Africa, Stuttgart, Germany, where I spent some time, supports U.S. Africa Command. Its CCSA is the Army. And SOC Europe, SOCUR, Stuttgart, Germany, supports U.S. European Command. Its CCA is the Army. SOC Central, SOC Cent, MacDill Air Force Base, where SOCOM happens to be on that Tampa Peninsula, supports U.S. Central Command. Its CCA is the Air Force. SOC Pacific, SOC PAC at Camp Smith, Hawaii, supports U.S. PACOM, Pacific Command. Its CCSA is the Navy. SOC Korea, SOC Corps, Yongsung Korea, supports U.S. Forces Korea. Its CCSA is the Army. Spent time there, too. SOC U.S. Northern Command, SOC North, Peterson Air Force Base, Colorado. They support the U.S. Northern Command. Its CCSA is the Air Force. A CCSA is a combat command support agent. You'll find them logistics. You'll find them transportation, BOL, whatever the case may be. So they're all over the place. Now, these TSOC commanders are the senior soft advisors for their respective ground combatant commands. And each of these TSOCs is capable of forming the core of a joint task force headquarters for short-term operations. And they can provide command and control for all soft and theater on a continuous basis, given the necessary support planning and rehearsals that they need to make that happen. Now, Army Special Operations Command, of which I was a member for a while, U.S. Army SOF includes approximately 27,000 soldiers from the active Army National Guard and Army Reserve. We have to keep in mind when it comes to special forces, for instance, I'm a veteran of 12th Special Forces Group, and uh, we drilled out of Hamilton Airfield in Marin County in California. And they have since gone the way of the dodo. They were folded as U.S. Army Reserve organizations into 19th and 20th group in the National Guard, which I have on good information happens to be the two most well-populated and well-manned groups out there as far as folks. And they do both reserve and active duty missions. So Rangers are part of this, Special Operations Aviations Units like uh, 160th, along with Civil Affairs Units, Military Information Units, Special Operations Support Units, Logistical Units, RSOF headquarters, Army Special Operations Forces headquarters, and other resources such as the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center at school. Those who know what the word Pineland knee means will uh, be able to get nostalgic about that. Are at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. No, I will not employ the, um, the name Fort Liberty. It will always be Fort Bragg to me. I'm always fascinated that the U.S. Democratic Party happens to be the ones that are so hell-bent on changing all of these base names that were named after Confederate soldiery and general officers, when in the end, since there were no Republicans in Confederate saddles, only members of the Democrat Party, if they were politically involved, it is interesting to see a major American political party erasing itself by its destruction of statuary dedicated to the Confederacy, during the War of Northern Aggression, and also the changing of all of these base names. Special Forces groups are 1st, 3rd, 5th, 7th, and 10th. I'm an alumnus of 
12th group, 1st group, and 10th group to which I was seconded on some European missions. And again, uh, numbers, you can look those up as far as how many are in there, but you can look at a special forces group as roughly that group nomenclature being the equivalent of a brigade minus in the, um, the U.S. Army, M-T-O-N-E. Uh, they're stationed all over the place, Fort Bragg, Fort Lewis, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where I served in the 101st Airborne Division, Fort Carson, Colorado, and Elgin Air Force Base, Florida. SF soldiers, also known as Green Berets, even though they like to call themselves SF soldiers, Hollywood likes Green Berets, but you'll never find that kind of self-referential treatment against actual people who have served in those organizations, are trained in various skills, including foreign languages, that allow those teams to operate independently throughout the world to act as force multiplier foreign internal defense adjuncts to teach foreign armies either the basics or intermediate or even advanced skill sets of soldiering and prosecuting conflict. I mentioned those two Army National Guard Special Forces groups are 19th and 20th. I think that they are based respectively in Utah and Alabama. In addition, an elite airborne light infantry unit specializing in direct operation, direct action operations, which is the 75th Ranger Regiment and its three battalions, is stationed in both Georgia and also on the on the West Coast up in Washington. And there are about 800 soldiers each with support battalions and logistical footprints. Army Special Operations Aviation Unit, the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, Airborne SOAR. They consist of five battalions and headquartered at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, flying a number of MH-designated rotary wing aircraft to include Little Birds, MH-60s, MH-47s. The M tends to denote a soft aircraft in both the Army and the Air Force, and usually they'll have an ability to fly either nap of the earth or in very diminished light conditions, and usually include a refueling capability characterized by a probe at the front of the aircraft. And you'll find this on the fixed-wing aircraft, too, like the MH, the, I mean the MC-130s, same thing, as far as having the refueling legs. And, of course, the concomitant mechanical and logistical capability to fly those long distances and long hours. Uh, they're trained to fly the most sophisticated Army rotary-wing aircraft out there. We talked about them briefly when we talked about Gothic Serpent, which was the 1993 Somalia effort. And they can fly an inverse we adverse weather, and they support all the U.S. SOCOM components, not just exclusively Army units. And, of course, oddly enough, some of the most frequently deployed soft assets happen to be civil affairs. When it comes to the Ranger organizations, are probably the finest light infantry forces in the world. And when it comes to special forces, when I was in, and I don't think it's changed too much, they had core activities they would participate in. Direct action, which would be, of course, the sexy stuff that you see on TV of busting down doors and shooting people in the face. Special reconnaissance and strategic reconnaissance, which is where you would be in a hide site, to determine, assess, and report back on enemy threat movements, those kind of things, unconventional warfare, which would be the original force multiplier mission that was envisioned in the 1950s and the 1960s 
when Special Forces first got its own institutional beret and was championed by John F. Kennedy to go in with a 10 to 12-man team, 12-man team ideally, but try getting a 12-man team out there on an extended deployment. Good luck. Into, let's say, conducting partisan operations or going behind enemy lines and forming battalions, if not brigade minus strength, military organizations to harry the enemy's rear. Uh, foreign internal defense, I had mentioned that earlier, that's all about going into a permissive environment instead of a non-permissive environment and being invited usually by the host nation to train their armed forces, whether special operations or, or some other kind of organization. Special forces has gone into a number of countries and like when I was at First Special Forces Group all over Southeast Asia, training everyone from the Indonesians to the Koreans to the Vietnamese to the Thais and such in both conventional and unconventional warfare. And that would be foreign internal defense. They do tangentially and I think almost de facto conduct civil affairs operations in most everything that they do, even though there is a civil, civil affairs military occupational specialty that does that very thing. Counterterrorism can somewhat be folded underneath direct action, but there are special operations forces activities out there that don't do any carnivore work or shooting work or conduct that kind of very active social work of dispatching terrorists or the arms and auxiliaries that support them, but the people who conduct the intelligence, the communications interception, the logistical footprints, all of that stuff for those kind of things. What used to be characterized as PSYOP has almost been folded under MISO, which is Military Information Support Operations as an umbrella, and counterproliferation of weapons of mass destruction. These tend to be the core activities of SF. Now, of course, you'll also have security forces assistance, and of course, they love to talk about counterinsurgency. And anybody who has listened to this podcast for more than an hour and heard me bloviate about it knows how I feel about counterinsurgency and other missions such as hostage rescue or recovery and foreign humanitarian assistance. There was, um, at one point when I was assigned to the SF group in Okinawa, where we did foreign humanitarian assistance during Bangladeshi flooding. Uh, also, one could say that could be characterized by demining missions that have been conducted planet-wide by SF soldiers, EOD soldiers, and others. Hostage rescue recovery, I just mentioned that. What happens there is that there are two special forces organizations, two battalions that are focused forward outside of CONUS. That would be the one in Okinawa, Japan, which is first the first and first of the 10th stationed out of Stuttgart, Germany, and they originated in Betolz, Germany. And they are the battalion footprints that are there that can be called up for those kind of regional operations where time is of the essence and something has to be done. If any of you saw the movie 13 Hours, which I thought was a, a really good movie, almost like Black Hawk Down, where it was very representational in a realistic fashion of what small unit combat looks like and how dirty it is, how harrowing it is, and how horrible it is. Well, in that movie the first of the 10th was one of the organizations that had been called upon to help the beleaguered company station that was 
under fire after the ambassadorial residence had been destroyed. One quick editorial pause. Former colleagues of mine and I who served in SF together, they were carnivores, I was an herbivore as support to SF. We are agreed that special forces and other soft organizations in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, the Horn of Africa, Yemen, possibly Syria, where things are still hot, were so drunk on direct action, so drunk on DA, that as sexy and wonderful as that can be to certain folks who are attracted by that, Ranger Regiment 0311, Marine Infantry, and even most light infantry organizations and airborne organizations and air assault organizations in the U.S. modified table of organizational equipment for divisions throughout the country and around the world where they may be based are perfectly capable of conducting those kind of missions. And because of that, they did that, special forces, did that at the expense of unconventional warfare and uh, guerrilla activity, counter-guerrilla activity, and actually going in there and doing the hard work of creating fighting organizations from indigenous forces, I, I think it, it, it went a long way towards taking away a lot of the very unique fighting power, efficacy, and effectiveness of U.S. Army Special Forces, if not the entire soft organization in the Pentagon infrastructure. Rant off. Now we move to the Air Force Special Operations Command. One of the Air Force's 10 major commands, approximately 19,500 active reserve and civilian personnel. Please take these numbers with a grain of salt. Maybe higher, maybe lower. 11 AFSOC units operate out of four major continental uh, United States locations and two overseas locations. The headquarters for AFSOC, 1st Special Operations Wing, 24th Special Operations Wing, and the Air Force Special Operations Air Warfare Center are located at Herbert Field in Florida. The Air Force Special Operations Air Warfare Center, they're responsible for the training, education, the regular warfare program, innovation development, and the operational testing there. U.S. Air Force Special Tactics Organizations, unlike the SEALs who almost seem to come out of training, and even all of them, with a penchant for publicity and tooting their horn and talking about what they do whenever a camera or a microphone is in front of them, the Air Force tends to be a lot more hesitant about that and you don't hear all that much about them. So they have something called U.S. Air Force Special Tactics Squadrons. Uh, the primary mission of 24 So, for instance, is they provide special tactics forces for rapid global employment to empower air power success. I know that's a mouthful. 24 So is U.S. Special Operation Command's Tactical Air and Ground Integration Force and the Air Force's Special Operations Ground Force, and they enable the global access, precision, or near-precision strike, and personnel recovery operations. By the way, PR, personnel recovery operations. That's what gives pilots and aviators, that would be Air Force and Navy respectively, the confidence and trust that when they go in harm's way, either alone and unafraid, or together in organizations, units, numbering up to a squadron, and they happen to either have to bail out of their aircraft, very rare these days, or have to do a forced landing, either fixed wing or, or rotary wing, you don't want to do either one of those, by the way. They have the confidence that the pararescue organizations 
and the combat rescue resources of both the Army and more so the Air Force are there to come in and extract them. Now, that's not all their core capabilities are. They do airfield reconnaissance. They do assessment and control. They do the personnel recovery I just discussed. They do joint terminal attack control and environmental reconnaissance. For instance, CTT, the combat, the, uh, combat controllers in the U.S. Air Force probably have one of the steepest and longest training pipelines. I think their attrition rates are abominable, but it's almost three and a half years to be a CCT, and a CCT is that organization that probably, when you think about it, is fascinating, is that one man who's standing there with his 140 pounds of kit, most of which is radios, on his back or at his feet, and he is literally the combat air controller. Think of an air traffic controller, but with a lot of aircraft at his, his disposal. He's calling them in and guiding all the terminal ballistics for everything that they bring to the game, whether that is dumb bombs or JDAMs or precision-guided munitions, guiding in gun trucks, huge bombing runs, whatever the, the case may be. When you think about it, these Air Force CTTs may be the most lethal single human in the military history of mankind. Now, Special Tactics is composed of Special Tactics officers, the combat controllers I just talked about, combat rescue officers, pararescuemen, another really long training pipeline because they have to be qualified not only as paramedics, but also in scuba operations, scout swimmer operations, uh, jumping operations, those kind of things. Special operations, weather officers and airmen, air liaison officers, uh, tactical air control parties and operators, and a number of combat support airmen who comprise 58 Air Force specialties. These guys are studs, and they do a lot of hard work. Now we talk about the Navy. I may be wasting my breath because everybody's heard of what sea, air, and land operators do. Naval Special Warfare Command, also known as WARCOM, to the guys within. Now, it's comprised of approximately 10,000 personnel, including active duty special warfare operators known as SEALs, special warfare boat operators known as special warfare combatant craft crewmen, reserve personnel, not a lot, support personnel and civilians. Now, NSWIC is organized around 10 SEAL teams, two SEAL delivery vehicle teams, and three special boat teams. Special boat teams would be surface teams. SEAL teams consist of six SEAL platoons each, each of those consisting of two officers and 16 enlisted personnel. Do the math there and you find these SEAL teams may not be as large as you thought when you look at the actual operators. Now, of course, if we switch our focus here from special operations and we go up to conventional forces, what you do find is what we characterize as a tooth-to-tail ratio, which means that for every trigger puller that's out there, that infantryman, whether he's the 11 Bravo in the Army or the 0311 guy in the Marine Corps, both of them very capable light fighters and mechanized fighters on the ground who will close and with the enemy and do the dirty work involved in that kind of thing. One thing I did want to mention is that, and this is an umbrella thought and sentiment about all of these special operations forces, is that what you're seeing is you're seeing very small organizations, for the most part, even though they have very big tails, maybe even exceeding that 1 to 10 or 1 to 11 tooth to tail ratio, 
that I just talked about where you'll have the trigger pullers, but you're going to have tens if not dozens of folks behind every one of them who provide the logistical footprint, the training modality, the facilities, and all the things that allow them to engage the enemy and press their triggers and be assured that once they have exhausted everything they have at their disposal or called in what they need, there's more waiting for them. What these special operations forces, for the most part, do is they use tactical means to achieve strategic objectives. And that would probably be the reason why they exist in the first place. And one could call that, I think the phraseology is strategic compression. Again, to the SEALs. The major operational components of uh, NSWC include Naval Special Warfare Group 1, 3, and 11, stationed at Coronado and Naval Special Warfare Groups 2, 4, and 10, and the Naval Special Warfare Development Group in Little Creek, Virginia. Now, these components deploy SEAL teams, SEAL delivery vehicle teams, and special boat teams worldwide to meet the training and exercise contingency and wartime requirements of the theater commanders. Now, because SEALs are considered experts in special reconnaissance and direct action missions, primarily counterterrorism skills, NSWC is viewed as a well-postured, organization to fight a globally dispersed enemy ashore or afloat. Everything from pirates on board occupied ships to hit missions at facilities, much like the alleged takedown of Osama bin Laden by SEAL team members. They can operate in small groups and have the ability to quickly deploy from Navy ships, submarines, and aircraft, overseas bases, and forward base units. What you find with SEALs is that they're an extraordinarily expensive organization to get to the fight unlike the others. Mind you, absent U.S. Air Force Special Operations wings, none of these organizations, to include the SEALs, would have the capability, legs, or traction to get where they get. So to me, it's almost like a cruciform, a, a critical path to making all this happen is going to be U.S. Air Force Special Operations Command. Otherwise, you don't have the global planetary reach of getting these very talented young men, and in very few cases, young women, to where they need to be to conduct the social work they have been assigned. On November 1st, 2005, DOD announced the creation of the Marine Special Operations Command, MARSOC, as a component. They have since reflagged themselves to the U.S. Marine Corps Forces Special Operations Command. Now, MARSOC consists of a Marine Raider Regiment, which includes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Marine Raider Battalions, the Marine Raider Support Group, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Marine Raider Support Battalions, and the Marine Special Operations School. Now, MARSOC headquarters, the 2nd and 3rd Marine Raider Battalions, the Marine Special Operations School, the Marine Raider Support Group, are, they're stationed at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, 1st Marine Raider Battalion, stationed at Camp Pendleton, California. MARSOC forces have been deployed worldwide to conduct full-range of special operations activities. And MARSOC missions include direct action, special reconnaissance, foreign internal defense, counterterrorism, and information operations. You're probably seeing a concurrent motif throughout what the ground forces tend to do here. Ground for the SEALs, of course, being reach the beach. And they currently have around 3,000 personnel assigned. Youngest son served four years in the Marine Corps. He supported these guys, did not get in that training pipeline. Again, this training pipeline, I have heard, can be two to three and a half years, long time, very selective, as the Marines are a very selective 
for the most part, except in the last few years, of who they bring in for anything that they do. While I have the greatest respect for the Marine Corps as a fighting organization, what I do find is that they wanted to get on this bandwagon because it's quite lucrative from a budget perspective. Marine Raiders, Marine Special Operations, not really a new thing. If one looks at Carlson's Marine Raiders and their activities on Guadalcanal in 1942 and 1943 in World War II and other exploits that they conducted, you could see the blueprints and the foundational aspects of what would shape it to what it is today from those World War II roots. Anecdotally, it was the Marines who seemed to be the most fit deployed soldiers when I was in Afghanistan because I saw a constant flurry of U.S. Army personnel, particularly officers who were in a race to exceed their height by their girth, and I never once saw a Marine, whether MARSOC or a line Marine, who was in that kind of shape. Those of you interested in physical fitness, as a very quick aside, I recommend you look up the MARSOC short card because those exercise regimes, which don't demand any fitness equipment whatsoever, will really kick your ass and get you in shape. So that sums up the meat and bones of the Special Operations Forces. And you'll remember the numbers that I tallied earlier. And I, I talked about tooth to tail, 10 to 1. And what you'll find is that maybe in SOCOM, with I think they're bordering on 78,000 personnel, maybe 10% of them are trigger pullers and carnivores who actually conduct all the sexy mission sets that are either portrayed inaccurately in Hollywood or reflected a little more, bit more accurately in the memoirs and books that you see on occasion that come out about these very things, everything from training to the actual conduct of operations. Now, so special operations and regular warfare, regular warfare being the meat and potatoes of this podcast series, the relationship between these special operations and regular warfare is that they will either support an insurgency or a resistance movement against a nation state, or they'll support a nation state against an insurgency, resistance, or terrorists. Now, while I find the elimination of terrorists a possibility, maybe a probability, but more likely a possibility, everyone who has listened to my podcast series know how skeptical I am about the actions, behavior, history, and future possibilities for successful Western counterinsurgency, which in my mind is zero. So when it comes to irregular warfare activities, special operators can do things, especially in hybrid zones, gray zones, which are tangentially those parts of things that tend to con conform or support larger conventional conflicts to give an edge. Uh, special operations they could be conducted in hostile, denied, or politically sensitive environments. When we say denied, we usually talk permissive and non-permissive. And what permissive means is that when one would conduct foreign internal defense missions at the request of the Indonesian or Egyptian government, that's in a permissive environment because you've been invited to go there. A non-permissive environment is where you haven't been invited to go there. And most likely you're conducting combat operations like what you found Army Special Forces organizations out of first group and other support elements conducting in the semi-autonomous Muslim Republic 
on the island of Mindanao in the Philippines. That would be considered a permissive environment in the east and a non-permissive environment in the west. I learned in SF and from other folks in less specialized organizations that if you are masters of the basics, then you can master the intermediate and the advanced skills. You'll find this throughout your entire life, whether it's military or civilian. If you don't have those, master, those basics mastered cold, you are not going to be able to achieve the conscious and unconscious competence in, in the talent stacks that you apply to whatever endeavor you're involved in. And as I've said repeatedly, what you find in war, in conflict, whether low level or high level, and it's always high level when you're the one at the either um, one end of the range or the other in a hot conflict, what you discover is that you have these complex adaptive modalities, whether it's 12 men or 1,200 men in active combat, either hasty or deliberate, meeting engagements or combat engagements with others on the battlefield, that you never know what's going to happen and that chaos and complexity are just natural ingredients of that entire stew. When it comes to the tactical level of war, we're going to go back to 101 very quickly. This is the level of war at which battles and engagements are planned and executed to achieve military objectives. Operational level of war, that's the level of war at which campaigns and major operations are planned, conducted, and sustained to achieve strategic objectives by that tactical level of war when it's multiplied across the board, whether horizontally or vertically. The strategic level of war, that's where the nation often is a member of a group of nation or alliances, determines national or multinational strategic security objectives, and of course, war ending objectives and guidance. And they develop and use our national resources to achieve these objectives. And then grand strategic would fold all of these things to include the war making capabilities with the whole of government or even the whole of a non-existent state and all of those components together would tell one what the grand strategy would be. In Colonel John Boyd's inimitable style, he really distilled it down for me when it came to strategy because if one listens to the experts from Colin Gray to Edvard Lutvak, Colonel John Boyd, and uh, others out there, you discover that maybe it's simpler than they make it out to be. And basically what Boyd said is that you create and incentivize alliances and you isolate enemies. So as an engineer, what we look at as root causes and proximate causes, for me, when it comes to this whole thing, the root cause of all successful strategy is where you capitalize on what Boyd talks about leveraging those alliances and isolating your enemies, and everything you do from that point forward is to make those things happen. We've also got to concern ourselves with the fact that SOF, Special Operations Forces, operate across the conflict spectrum. So what's the conflict spectrum? Let's take it out of the horse's mouth, as it were, which is Joint Publication 3.0, which talks about operations. And it talks about the conflict continuum, on which on the left you would have peace, on the right you would have war. And then in the range of those military operations going down on the other axis, you have large-scale combat operations, crisis response and limited contingency operations, and then military engagement 
security cooperation and deterrence. The first two of those three being a lot of what special operations forces do overseas with allied. Now, there's a very interesting publication out there called the Unconventional Warfare Pocket Guide, version one. Mine's from 5 April 2016. Maybe they've updated it. I was too lazy to check it out. But what they do is they have the phases of UW, numbered, of course, in this case, from one to seven. And I think we saw this sort of brilliantly executed in, two, in the fall of 2001, in this case, from approximately October, November, December 2001, before Big Army came into Afghanistan and ruined everything, where you had the members of 5th Special Forces Group who were horse soldiers, actually riding horses with the Northern Alliance. So if we took that as somewhat of a template, what we'd find is that phase one is preparation, resistance and external sponsors. They conduct the psychological preparation to unified populations against established government or occupying power. And they prepare the population to accept U.S. and coalition support. Phase two is where U.S. government Agencies, maybe coalition agencies, coordinate with allied government in exile or resistance leadership for desired U.S. support. You saw this leverage tremendously and successfully, for the most part, during World War II. Phase three would be infiltration, where the SF team infiltrates operational areas. And the size of SF teams, as I mentioned, 10 to 12 men, or if you're sending in a company, or maybe you're sending in three to six if they've been secunded by other battalions or organizations, they will go into the operational area and start establishing the comms, the logistical footprints, and connecting all the dots to actually operationalize their ability to support the organizations they're going to train. So they organize, they train, and they equip those resistance cadre, phase four. That's the organization. Then you've got the buildup where you have SF teams assisting cadres with expansions into effective or resistance organizations. And those of you who have been in the military, maybe your military history buffs, you've read about this, you know that when it comes to the coordination of this kind of thing, it isn't necessarily the textbook of how to do this, but it's the cultural IQ and the experiential database that the folks bring in, as Lawrence and Collins taught us from 1916 to 1922, that helps to develop those kind of infrastructure and success landscapes on which those talent stacks can be exploited. The buildup occurs, which is phase five. Phase six is the actual employment where these unconventional warfare forces conduct their combat operations until link up with conventional forces. And then of course, there's a transition, which is phase seven, which is the ideal point at which the US military forces find themselves utterly talentless at, which is either arranging with third world and developing nation armed forces a coalition of the willing where they fight together or where they're able to finally pass on to them and allow them to have the flags and the banners and the standards to go on without U.S. Western coalition or alliance help and be successful. There is very little history since the end of World War II of the U.S. successfully doing that. 
Now, I've promised you in past episodes that what happened with the Tamils in Sri Lanka may be evidence of this being successfully done, but that wasn't by U.S. forces. And Plan Columbia to defeat the narco-terrorist and narco-military organizations in Colombia proper may have been an indicator of success. But while I can say that may be the case for Sri Lanka, it is probably not the case. When it comes to risk aversion and risk assumption and the differences from conventional operations, what you discover in the employment of soft organizations, which tend to be smaller, is that one has to have a greater acceptance on the part of those who are the players and on the political risk takers of the greater physical and political risk of these kind of operations. There's a dependence on detailed operational intelligence and indigenous assets that tends not to be the case in large-scale conventional operations. There tends to be an independence from friendly support much more reliance on unconventional support and very sophisticated communications. So when it comes to how this is done, Neil Stevenson, one of my favorite novelists, he has a quote that I'm, I'm always fond of, and it says, quote, when you are wrestling for possession of a sword, the man with the handle always wins, end of quote. Now, by the way, That seems to be from the University of the Intuitively Obvious, but how often in the past few decades, especially as evidenced by what occurred in Iraq and Afghanistan in the last two decades, does it look like the U.S. forces and the coalition forces, for that matter, never wrestled with the handle end of the sword? There's a distinction in armed forces and conflict methodology between the direct approach and the indirect approach. In the larger aspects, the direct approach is the head-on charge where one is not taking advantage of investing and collapsing the flanks or the rear of an enemy or number of enemies who may be aligned together. The What one would see with human wave attacks by the Chinese in late 1950 and uh, 51 and 52 on the Korean Peninsula, those kind of things. The indirect approach is where you're focusing on preparing and shaping and influencing that environment. In the words of B.H. Liddell Hart, who wrote that book I had mentioned earlier called Strategy, it was a champion of this indirect approach in the 1920s and 1930s. Quote, one direct approach had, by its vain cost, done much to undo the aggregate advantage, which indirect approaches alone had built up. And it is not the least significant feature that the issue was finally settled in the reverse way, by yet another example of the indirect approach, end of quote. Now, Liddell Hart writes that in the 1930s. We can fast forward to 1991, and you see that Colin Powell and the other uniform worthies at the time took it upon themselves to combine both a direct and an indirect approach so that with the indirect approach, they invested assets into parts of the enemy that appeared to be weak, scattered, or subject because of poor morale to very easy scattering from concentrated fires and maneuver. Hence, not only was the front engaged of the Iraqi army forces to include the redoubtable guards formations that were deployed, but their flanks, rears, 
logistical organizations and all of that were targeted at the same time, which of course led to a total collapse of it. I would tell you that in the larger way, in the larger conventional sense, that is leveraging the indirect approach. But the indirect approach, I would suggest, is what is taken by most special operations forces when they do what they do. Everything from failed organizational strategies, like Gothic Serpent in 1993 and Operational Eagle Claw in Iran in 1979, to successful ones like the taking of Osama bin Laden, what happened to the incipient nuclear complexes in Iran with the computer viruses and such, these indirect approaches are trying to feel and assess and establish with pretty good certainty and accuracy that there were soft spots and weaknesses that could be leveraged, taken, taken advantage of, that would lead to the collapse of very large organizations. I know that you hear me bag a lot on the lack of efficacy when it comes to counterinsurgency and, for the most part, conventional operations on the part of American forces, if not Western forces, since the end of World War II. One could go back and we would find other examples of that. But I did want to hit some dates to show that historical special operations go back a fairly long way. And I can find myself to about the end of World War II because I could go back to Rogers Rangers during the French and Indian War, the Cousins War, that ended in 1765. And that eight-year conflict set into train what would be the Spanish and French help of the infant American nation to best the best armed forces on planet Earth at the time, which were the British. Rogers Rangers were a part of that. They are an inspiration for Ranger Regiment today. There were another number of organizations that the Spanish used against the French forces on the peninsula and during the peninsula campaign that Napoleon and his cadre would refer to as the Spanish ulcer. These were special operations teams in both um, the way they conducted their business and what they were able to achieve. I mean, we look at it July 1st, 1947, is when the Air Force authorized the first official pararescue teams. And these are the guys who are paramedics who will fly into harm's way to rescue those aviators and pilots that I had mentioned earlier. Army Ranger training and uh, September 1950, it began as an institutional imperative at Fort Benning, Georgia. And of course, we know the Rangers also performed operations in June, July 1944 on the investment of the European continent by the Allied forces after D during and after D-Day. Uh, June 20th, 1952, 10th Special Forces Group activated at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. October 12th, 1961, John F. Kennedy approves their signature headgear, Green Beret. And June 19th, 1957, because of what was experienced in Korea, the Marine Corps officially activates Force Recon, one of their earlier very competent special operations organizations. April 14th, 1961, the Air Force Tactical Air Command establishes the 44th, the 4400th Combat Crew Training Squadron to fly operations against guerrillas. And by the way, there, there is an organization in the Air Force that sort of does a U.S. Army Special Forces mission. And what that is, 
is they go and they train third world and developing nations, for the most part, how to create air forces. And that's a pretty unique special operation organization, I think. January 1st, 1962, Navy SEALs are officially established. January 30th, 1968, Tet Offensive begins. By the way, I highly recommend Huey 1968 by Mark Bowden. Yes, the same one who wrote Black Hawk Down. It's an incredible, comprehensive, and very detailed story of what happened in Tet and Huey during that offensive and why that could be put as a mark in the wall on why the U.S. forces would never succeed in either defeating the North Vietnamese or preventing the North Vietnamese from taking the entire country. April 19, 1968, one of the most daring long-range penetration operations of the Vietnam War, the Army Rangers sees Signal Hill. I urge you to look that up. And then, of course, a mere two, two and a half years later, November 21st, 1970, during Operation Ivory Coast, those of you who have heard of the Sante POW camp, that was captured by Special Forces. The estimated 70 to 100 American POWs who had been held there had been moved, but the raid is considered a huge tactical success and sent a message to the North Vietnamese that the U.S. is capable of inserting a combat force, in this case, probably in excess of maybe a, a company minus, inserting combat force undetected only miles from their capital. Uh, we have April 2nd, 1972, where Lieutenant Colonel Iseal Gene Hamilton is shot down while flying an EB-66 Charlie reconnaissance airplane. And a search and rescue mission was conducted by SEALs and named Bat-21. Yes, that film. I urge you to watch it. Largest and longest of the Vietnam War as a search and rescue mission. October 1977, U.S. Army 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta, a.k.a. Delta Force, is formed under Colonel Charles Beckwith. Highly recommend if you want to dig into that. There's lots of books out there. But remember, my feeling is all autobiography is fiction. So take things with a grain of salt. Sorry, Colonel Hackworth. April 24th, 1980, again, two and a half years, three and a half years after the instantiation of Delta. Operation Equal Claw, which I referred to at the beginning of this episode, an Iranian hostage rescue attempt is unsuccessful because of a variety of reasons that I'll let you investigate yourselves. And the final thing I'll tackle here for early history of historic special operations in the U.S., and I haven't touched much on coalition forces after World War II is October 16, 1981, Army 160th SOAR, Special Operations Aviation Regiment, Night Stalkers, again headquartered out of Fort Campbell. I had the honor of working with those guys on occasion. I know I seem to have sent this, spent this entire podcast series bagging on the U.S. coalition and allied military forces, both large and small, as being extraordinarily incompetent keeping in mind my notion that all wars are won by the least incompetent force. Some of the most amazing, resilient, and awesome people I've ever met or worked with happen to be in uniform when I met them, or maybe even contractors on occasion. So a couple things in conclusion. 
tactical operations best applied to achieve operational and strategic level effects are the hallmark of successful special operations forces. They're different than conventional operations with unique characteristics, requirements, and advantages that take a special kind of man to do that you can't draw from the lion's share of those who wear the uniform. You can apply this across the full range of military operations. And by the way, you can apply this as far as the time continuum is concerned, everything from before the war to after the war. And again, I want to emphasize, this is always a complement to conventional operations for the most part and never a substitute. So that concludes our brief overview and primer on U.S. Special Operations Forces, and in parentheses I put vanilla, not dark. And thank you for joining us. I wanted to provide you with one corrective, and that was last week when I talked about the extraordinary training by Bob Keller at Gamut Resolutions, headquartered here in Florida, where I now live. His name is Bob, not Pat. I think I said Pat. So, uh, Bob, apologies, but some of the best damn training on earth He's the one who said, hey, aim small, miss small, train with three-inch DOD dots. That's what my sons and I have been doing, and it has given us extraordinary leaps and bounds in our accuracy and speed when it comes to pistol craft and rifle craft. Really happy to be here in Florida now. We're in southern Florida below Tampa. I look forward to hearing from my listeners. I wanted to thank you for your listenership. I wanted to urge all of you, if you could take the time to leave reviews, I'd prefer them to be good, on whatever podcast provider you use, whether it's Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, or whatever it is, and be sure to correspond with me. Uh, constructive comments, opinions, criticisms. I do like criticisms because I can't be offended. And if you do use ad hominem argumentation, which has happened just a couple times in the vast correspondence I've received, again, thank you for all of you who have done so. Uh, I don't pay much attention to it. You can get in touch with me at cgpodcast.pm.me. That is cgpodcast.pm.me. I thank you, and I'm grateful for your listenership. This is Bill, out. <laughs>